Well, folks, great to be here. Um, as jo Joanna said, I'm a, a good friend of Frank's, a wonderful fellow, wonderful minister. You know that as well as I, or maybe better. And thanks uh, to Joanna and uh, Taffy, lovely sharing Taff, and Ginny for beautiful music. Thank you, Ginny. You know that song that we just sang? Um, so I served the Essex Church for 14 years, retired a year and a half ago, and, and they made me minister emeritus. Some years back, we had an organist. Actually, my first year there, actually, in 19, 2003. And I came in one Sunday morning. We had an organist who subsequently died very shortly after, sadly, young man. And I would bring the hymns in, and so I gave him a set of hymns, and this 170 was part of that. And he made a face when I shared that hymn with him, you know, like, and I thought, oh, you don't like that hymn? And he said, well, you know. And I said, well, I can change it. It's not a big deal. I'll, I'll get another one. No, 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 he said, let's sing that hymn today. Maybe you'll get it out of your system. Well, the poor guy, you know, he's with God, I hope, but um, I haven't gotten it out of my system, Todd. <laughs> yes, isn't that great? So, when Frank called me and asked me to preach today, I said, what a privilege. Of course, I would be happy to preach. So, do you have any ideas? Is there something that the congregation needs to hear? And he said, well, we have a theme for March, Art. And I said, great, what is it? He said, salvation. And I thought, salvation? Frank, could you explain what you mean by salvation? I mean, not a lot of people talk about salvation these days, particularly in um, Unitarian Universalist circles or even liberal religious circles. I remember what salvation meant growing up. Anyone remember this prayer, going to bed, now I lay me down to sleep, raise your hand. If... Oh my gosh, no. I'm home. <laughs> I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Talk about a salvation prayer. And the focus of I may die and I want to get there, I want to get to heaven. Isn't that the purpose of life, right? And all the jokes about St. Peter when we get there and we get interrogated by St. Peter. The focus of life in this young child's mind was getting to heaven, salvation. But there's a little irony here, and you probably mostly know about it, I'm guessing, as Universalists and Unitarians, but this church Universalist historically, our founding theological doctrine, if you will, is universal salvation. In the 1790s, um, John Murray up in Gloucester talked about universal salvation. Everyone gets to heaven one way or the other. There is no hell. There's a story about Hosea Ballou. You've probably heard about Hosea Ballou, universalist theologian, wrote a book on the atonement. But Ballou used to ride the circuit up in New Hampshire, not too far from here, preaching. And one day he was preaching with a, a fellow Christian, Ballou, a universalist, this Baptist 
Christian, and they were riding horses there on the circuit, on their horses. And of course, Ballou was preaching universal salvation. Till the Baptist said to him, Brother Ballou, let me get this straight. Universal salvation. If I knocked you off your horse, stole your horse and saddle and rode it away and left you for dead, I would still go to heaven? And Ballou responded and he said, if you were a universalist and a member of my church, the idea would never occur to you. <laughs> I mean, how many of us could come back with that one right on the spot, right? But this was a defining theology for universalists, universal salvation. But as the decades and now a century and a half now has gone by, or two centuries, um, with the growth of humanism and, you know, the thought of heaven and hell and salvation, who really, what do we do with that, that history? Dick Gilbert, one of our theologians, said, so what universal salvation is now is ethical universalism, ethical universalism, ethics that incorporates all. So 1973, I'm in a Catholic seminary in Washington, D.C., and I read this book called A Theology of Liberation. It's all about salvation. Written by Gustavo Gutierrez, a Peruvian, which I talked about earlier. And a revolution in theological circles, what he was talking about from Latin America. First of all, I learned the context out of which this theology developed, this theology of liberation. 1950s in Latin America, any of you are familiar with what was going on? Revolution everywhere, people rising up against the oligarchies. Bolivia, 1952, revolution. Guatemala, 1954, revolution, which the United States intervened in, by the way. Cuba, 1959, a revolution that stayed and lasted. At the same time that revolution is going on all over Latin America, a fellow named Paulo Freire from Brazil, an educator, started, he wrote a book called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. But his major impact was he developed a whole system of helping poor people, many of them not literate, to think critically about their lives. He called it raising consciousness to a different level. Why do you think there is this poverty? Why are you living this way when you know people in Sao Paulo have money and riches and wealth? Is this right? So we help people to start thinking critically about their situation, their poverty, their oppression. And then in the early 1960s, as Colombia was beginning to explode, a priest, Catholic priest named Camilo Torres, said, I can no longer celebrate mass until there's justice in society. So he stopped celebrating mass, picked up a gun, and joined the revolution. This Catholic priest, Camilo Torres, and he was shortly killed. So all these theologians, many of them went to Europe to study, are thinking, we've got to rethink our theology. What is salvation in the midst of such deprivation and oppression 
and poverty. We can no longer just preach an otherworldly message. So let me give you a demonstration of how that traditional theology works. So 1976, I, I decided I have to go to Peru. And the Dominicans, of which I was a part, had some missionaries there. So I go to Peru, north of Lima, a town called Chimbote. And I'm walking up a hill to this Variada neighborhood where there's no water, no electricity, 1976. And I stay with this priest. The door, someone knocks on the door, and there's this um, father with an infant in his hands. And the priest goes to the door, and I'm in the background looking this, and it appears to me the infant is lifeless. So the priest has a little conversation, does a little blessing, comes back in. I said, what just happened? He said, oh, well, Pedro came with his uh, child uh, to get blessed and asked me about the funeral. And I said, the child is dead? And he said, he, he, he is. And the priest was somewhat unfazed. And I said, well, my God, does that happen a lot? He said, all the time. People come to the door with dead infants. They expect it. If they have five children, maybe two will survive. And I said, but he didn't seem agitated. Well, he thinks that this is just the work of God. You know, my child now will go to heaven, and God will take care of this child. Gustavo Gutierrez, who wrote the first book on liberation theology, says this about salvation. Salvation is not something otherworldly, in regard to which the present life is merely a test. Salvation, and this is the key, the communion of human persons with God and the communion of human persons among themselves is something which embraces all human reality, transforms it, and leads it to its fullness in Christ. Those words were articulated in the mid-1960s. And after this major council of Catholic bishops, universal council called Vatican II, the Latin American bishops met in 1968 in Colombia to say, well, what does Vatican II mean for us, this big reform in the church? What do we do? What does it mean for us? And all these theologians, these liberation theologians, are informing these bishops. And out of that conference came a couple of key insights from these bishops. Number one is, as we reread the Bible, the God of the Bible, Jewish and Christian, is in solidarity with the oppressed, the poor, the disenfranchised. And if we really want to find God in a modern world, we will find God most especially in the dispossessed and the poor. That's number one. The second thing they said is, the situation that we are enduring now in Latin America, and maybe other parts of the world, but certainly in Latin America, is what they call structural injustice. Structural injustice. The system is corroded and corrupted and unjust, unjust. And they said it's a situation of sin, of sin. Shortly after this conference, the same bishop said, we think the solution for Latin America is socialism, probably. You know, we need to spread the wealth around. And when they were asked about revolution, well, liberation theologians, are you, 
are you for a revolution? The bishop said, we don't preach revolution, but we understand why people would stand up and revolt against this situation. As you heard in the reading, Jesus preached the kingdom of God, and he said at the end that it begins right now. Building the kingdom is transforming history now. It's not just a future reality where the fullness of the kingdom, but it's making a just world now. It's about human fulfillment and wholeness. And Jesus, preaching that message, as you all know, got executed, not by Jews, but by the Roman government. The government of his day thought for some reason that he was a threat to their structure. More recently, advocates of liberation theologian have been murdered, executed. Archbishop Romero in El Salvador, the four churchwomen in 1980. Salvation in liberation theology is the liberation of people, of society, of Mother Earth. Healing and wholeness is salvation. The liberation theologians looked at the Jewish scriptures and they found in the Jewish scriptures a key event called the Exodus in which God helps liberate the Jewish people from slavery. And all through the Jewish Bible, the prophets are speaking up, condemning injustice, and they're speaking for God. Liberation theology went on to spread beyond Latin America to Asia, to Africa, Eventually, there was black liberation theology and feminist liberation theology and earth-based liberation theology and liberation theology for the LGBTQ community. The poor, people of color, women, the earth are all crying out for justice. And liberation theology speaks directly to their situation and calls us all as people of faith to walk in solidarity with them. I eventually went back to Peru in the 80s, late 80s, and uh, wrote about that for my doctoral dissertation, Religion and Politics in Peru, and it was an amazing exercise for me to work through. So let's bring it to the current moment. And as I mentioned to the children, and Joanna beautifully mentioned about your generosity for immigrants and the struggle at the border of our country, as so many people in Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador are fleeing violence and endemic poverty. And more and more, if you've been watching the news, are not just young folks, which maybe some years back was the case, teenagers, young men mostly, but now it's families, families. We know about the separation of families. Well, more and more families are coming with small children, risking everything to try to get some relief from their situation. So let me offer you a little bit of a lens for how I see this situation. Because of course people have these debates about immigration. Well, you know, maybe we're against the wall, but we can't just let people in, anyone who wants to come. I mean, we, there has to be some limits. And you see people getting sort of contorted trying to figure this out. But let me give me a little bit of a lens. Maybe it helps, maybe it doesn't. When I studied liberation theology, I studied a lot about Latin American history. And of course, as you all know, and I knew, but then studied it more deeply, coloni colonialism that 
you know, when the Europeans five, six century, five centuries ago came to various parts of the world, including all over Latin America, the Portuguese, the Spanish, um, and so forth and so on. Of course, others went to Africa. So colonialism was about dominance and exploitation. And sadly, in my view, the United States has become the most recent colonial power. When I was talking about those revolutions in the 50s in Latin America, one country after another, and then into the 60s and 70s with Central America, Salvador, there was a revolution in the 70s, Nicaragua, and so forth and so on. In so many of those cases, our government's policies supported the oligarchy against a revolutionary change. And I think to myself, sadly, tragically, we are now reaping what we have sowed over these last many decades. That is, we prevented legitimate revolutions that were emerging for people fighting for justice and human freedom, and we supported, in many cases, repressive regimes. And now these folks who have been thwarted partly by our intervention, are now coming to us and saying, well, you took away our opportunity to transform our own societies, so we have no other choice but to come to your border and say to you, we're out of resources, we're out of ideas, you need to help us and make this right. Another way of saying that is, you've helped create this mess, now we're coming to you to help clean it up. If you read the Boston Globe on Friday, I think the Boston Globe editorial got it right. What we need to do regarding Honduras, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Mexico, these countries, is we must massively uh, send resources to those countries and help them, help people to stay in place, but also have jobs and, and opportunities into the future. You might call it reparations. You know, in the black community, there's a lot of talk about reparations for slavery, and I would say this is a perfect analogy. Reparations for the damage we've helped inflict on these people over the many, many decades. And it seems to me that would be just. There's a woman, a Notre Dame nun, who died some years ago named Maria Augusta Neal, who wrote a marvelous book about in the face of poverty in the third world, what is our job in the first world in the United States? And she wrote a book entitled Relinquish. It's our job now to begin relinquishing. Another way to see that is to start sharing our great riches, not hoarding them for ourselves, but to begin to relinquish. My brother Ted, wonderful fellow, I love him deeply, was a corporate exec. He's about 10 years older than I am and he did a lot of international travel. And sometime in the 80s, he said to me, he said, you know, I'm starting to make trips to Latin America because my company wants to invest in Latin America. And he said, you know Latin America, you speak some Spanish, would you like to be a consultant for my company? Well, I thought he was kidding. But he said, you're serious? And he said, yeah, yeah. He trusted me and he thought, so I said, well, here's my suggestion, Ted. All that technology that your company has developed, give it to them, free. And not only give it to them, but go there and teach them how to use that technology, but don't ask for any money. 
Don't sell it. And he looked at me funny and said, oh, well, I guess you won't be my consultant, right? But I was deadly serious. It was, to me, the beginning of reparations. Our universalist forebears understood that universal salvation meant what, what universal salvation meant long before liberation theology emerged. I'm going to read a very brief piece from, and, and I would encourage you to actually, it must be in the library here somewhere. But in 1917, at a universalist convention in Worcester, Massachusetts, this is what uh, the universalist said, 1917, Worcester, Mass. The Universalist Church recognizes the fact that no individual and no nation can live a completely effective Christian life in an unchristian social order. We therefore declare the primal task of the Church of today to be the construction of the world civilization in terms of justice, peace, and righteousness, so that the spiritual life of all may develop to the fullest capacity. They made this link between justice and society and working for that and their own spiritual journeys. A brilliant, brilliant moment for the Universalist Church. And the convention then went on to uh, advocate a whole series of initiatives as to how to bring that about. I really encourage you to read it and study it and say, wow, the Universalists were right there. So I'll conclude by just suggesting, so don't let those who are defending the status quo tell us as people of faith that we can't mix religion and politics. We should be up to our ears in politics, not elect, not, not, uh, politics, you know, I'm that candidate or this candidate, but politics, involvement in society, and demanding of politicians that more justice come to bear. We should be, I think, up to our ears in it. Most especially with the disenfranchised, those who, for whatever reason, are on the edge of our society, most especially in solidarity with them. It's what I call not mixing religion and politics, but the social implications of our faith. Our beliefs have social implications. It's about justice, not politics. And justice is central to our faith and, I would argue, as did the Universalists, our spiritual journey. So just to remind you what James Luther Adams said many decades ago, a great Unitarian Universalist. The question is about the churches as corporate bodies. Will we take history seriously and our responsibility for what happens in history against the danger that we'll be more interested in ourselves than in the kingdom? Salvation does not come through worship and prayer alone nor through private virtues that camouflage public indolence. Time and history are fraught with judgment and fulfillment, and we are in the valley of decision. But, as universalists, there's reason for hope.
Because the spirit of life, the God of history, has opened the way and called us to help transform the world we've inherited into the true kingdom. Amen.